the Bible says basically nothing about astronomy, but it has a lot to say about righteous war. And it is in this context only that it has occasion to speak of the motions of the heavenly bodies. In the book of Joshua, we find our hero with the upper hand in battle. Oh, alas, dusk is drawing close, the sun is setting. What a pity if some of the enemies, quote, delivered up before the children of Israel should be able to get away under the cover of darkness. Then spake Joshua to the Lord, and he said, Son, stand thou still. And the sun stood still until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Well, that is what the Bible tells us. The sun stood still in the midst of heaven, so that Joshua and uh, the chosen people could keep slaughtering infidels all night long. That is the full extent of astronomy in the Holy Book. No further detail is provided anywhere in the Bible regarding the astronomical constitution of the universe, uh, the motions of heavenly bodies, nothing like this. Nothing about whether the sun or the earth is in the center of the universe, for example. So obviously, serious scientists have little reason to engage with this passing tangential allusion to cosmology here in the book of Joshua. Uh, however, Galileo's philosophical enemies, they saw an opportunity here. By persistently and prominently accusing Galileo of proposing theories that were contrary to scripture, they forced Galileo into a corner, into a dilemma. Either Galileo would have to let the argument stand unopposed and therefore let his enemies have the last word, wouldn't make him look very good, or the other option, get involved with the very dangerous uh, game of scriptural interpretation, what's the right way to read the Bible. Oh boy, that's a minefield, isn't it? So Galileo, he took the bait, very foolishly, and then all the, these Aristotelians, his enemies, they could just sit back and watch Galileo march to his own uh, ruin in this minefield. So let's see, in fact, how Galileo proposes that we interpret this specific uh, biblical passage, the one about the sun standing still in the midst of heaven. His interpretation is nuts. It is a prime example of his shameless drive to score rhetorical points at any cost. Of course, it's perfectly reasonable to argue that the phrase about the sun standing still it should not be taken too literally. Indeed, it is commonly accepted, as Galileo observes, that various things in the Bible, quote, were set down in that manner by the sacred scribes in order to accommodate them to the capacities of the common people who are rude and unlearned, as Galileo puts it. And indeed, if the Bible is read literally, then it would be necessary to assign to God feet, hands, and eyes, as Galileo says. Of course, those passages are only figures of speech, according to Orthodox Christian understanding, when the Old Testament says that the commandments handed to Moses were written with the finger of God, then the intended takeaway is, of course, not that God has an actual physical finger and he needs it to write. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You know, he could create the entire universe under a week. He could flood the entire earth at will. And yet, if he needs to write something down, he has to painstakingly trace it out in clay with his finger. That doesn't make any sense. So, well, perhaps it's the same then with the phrase about the sun standing still. It's just a figure of speech adapted to everyday uh, parlance. It's not a scientific account, you know. In fact, even Copernicus himself speaks of sunrise and sunset in his book, uh, the book on revolution of heavenly bodies, as Galileo points out. 
even though uh, the sun doesn't move, of course, according to Copernicus, and he still uses those, that terminology. So it's hardly unreasonable to think that the sacred scribes who wrote the Bible would also use this kind of common sense uh, figures of speech, even if they knew that, in fact, well, they were divinely inspired, they would have known the truth that the sun is stationary, according to Galileo. So, well, that's all fine and well. But Galileo, he doesn't stop with this reasonable point. Instead, he makes the outlandish claim that the Joshua passage, in fact, literally agrees best with heliocentrism rather than geocentrism, even if taken to be uh, literal, uh, intended to be read literally. So here's Galileo's quote about this. If we consider the nobility of the sun, I believe that it will not be entirely unphilosophical to say that the sun, as the chief minister of nature, and in a certain sense the heart and soul of the universe, infuses by its own rotation not only uh, light but also motion into the other bodies which surround it. So if the rotation of the sun were to stop, the rotations of all the planets would stop too. Therefore, when God willed that at Joshua's command the whole system of the world should rest and should remain for many hours in the same state, it sufficed to make the sun stand still. In this manner, by the stopping of the sun, the day could be lengthened on earth, which agrees exquisitely with the literal sense of the sacred text. So that's Galileo's argument. It is a terrible argument. It is so unscrupulous that its utter absurdity can be exposed simply by quoting the words of Galileo himself, written in another context, in his own dialogue. Uh, here's the quote from that work, which explains what would happen if the Earth stopped dead in its tracks like that. If the terrestrial globe should encounter an obstacle, such as to resist completely all of its whirling motion and stop it, I believe that at such a time not only beasts, buildings and cities would be upset, but mountains, lakes and seas if indeed the globe itself did not fall apart. This agrees with the effect which is seen every day in a boat traveling briskly which runs aground or strikes some obstacle. Everyone aboard being caught unaware tumbles and falls suddenly forward to the front of the boat. So that is the Galileo's argument, and as uh, one observer has pointed out, in this manner then, if God had produced the command of stopping the sun, then Joshua would have destroyed not only the Philistines, but the whole earth. If stopping the sun meant stopping the motion of the earth, as Galileo claims. Not to mention that the idea that the sun's rotation on its axis is the only thing moving the planets is completely unsubstantiated in the first place. It seems that Galileo pretended to believe in this principle on this occasion uh, solely for the sake of being able to make this scriptural argument. The hypocrisy, unbridled opportunism of Galileo's stories in this biblical interpretation are plain to see. It's very difficult, if not completely impossible, to see Galileo's interpretation of the Joshua passage as a scientific argument that he genuinely believed. The second quote that I read about everything collapsing like a house of cards if the earth stopped, that quote is from 15 years later from the dialogue. But surely Galileo must have realized this all along. If he didn't, he was quite stupid. And if, in fact, he did realize this, and if he, he, he knew that stopping the earth that way would be completely infeasible, then obviously he was perfectly happy to fabricate scientifically nonsensical lies 
in this uh, in, in his interpretation of scriptural argument, as long as it helps him score satisfying rhetorical point. It's very pleasing, isn't it, to be able to say that, ha, ah, the Bible, even if it's taken literally, it still is, agrees better with my theory. I mean, uh, you can see why we want to make that argument, but it is, of course, uh, obviously then he's giving up or his scientific integrity in doing so. And that just goes to show how little all of any of this had to do with science. You know, Galilee's interpretation of the Joshua passage is terrible science, and he probably knew that perfectly well. This was a conflict between science and religion, as it's often called. If, by science, you mean the ludicrous idea that stopping the sun's rotation would immediately stop the earth dead in its tracks, and that the people on the earth, furthermore, would suffer no consequences of this whatsoever, except that the day would become longer. You know, this is the science in uh, science versus religion, if we go by what Galileo wrote. It was only because Galileo got involved with biblical interpretation that he ended up in the uh, crosshairs of the Inquisition. Nobody minded mathematical astronomy, but the question of who has the right to interpret the Bible, that was the stuff that wars were made of. No laughing matter. Martin Luther had challenged church authority, emphasized the personal understanding of the Bible, sola scriptura, you know, the motto of Protestantism, of the Reformation, so that was a core belief of uh, the Protestant uh, faith. Eradicating Protestantism was, of course, top of the agenda for the Catholic uh, Church. And this whole uh, episode plays out right in the middle of the Thirty Years' War, which was centered on this core conflict between Protestantism and Catholicism. It, it was a devastating war. It was comparable to the world wars in terms of per capita deaths. This is very serious stuff. Once Galileo's enemies had baited him into commenting on the Bible, it was all too easy for them to connect Galileo's otherwise harmless dabblings with with astronomy, to connect that to this heresy of the day, this Protestant-style heresy, which was precisely what the church was... Uh, so eager to stamp out everywhere because of the Thirty Years' War, because of this raging conflict within Protestantism and Catholicism, this was a matter on which the Church could afford to show no weakness. And this is why they had to act when, uh, when Galileo got involved in that business, despite their inclination not to get involved in scientific matters. So there's only one mystery then. Why did Galileo walk straight into such an obvious trap? And the answer lies as ever in his mathematical ineptitude. Galileo was told by church authorities that if he spoke only as a mathematician, he would have nothing to worry about. Galileo, well, presumably he would have followed this advice if he could. The problem, of course, was that he did not have anything to contribute as a mathematician. Since the mathematical defense of heliocentrism was beyond his abilities, Galileo was left with no other recourse than to roll the dice and try his luck in the dangerous and unscientific game of scriptural interpretation. The church was therefore reluctantly drawn into these astronomical squabbles. They had to do something, the church had to do something. The Inquisition was called into action 
and settled for a slap on the wrist. They did the least that they could, so to speak. In the, in the future, they decided or decreed and instructed Galileo that he must not hold, teach, or defend the Copernican system in any way, whatever. And they also ordered some mild censoring of Copernicus's book that just meant crossing out uh, a brief passage concerning the conflict with the Bible and a handful of expressions here and there throughout the book which insinuated the physical uh, truth of the theory. And that was it. There were no book bans, there were no imprisonments. Galileo got away with just a warning. And everybody who had Copernicus's book, they could just get a, a pen and scratch out a couple of words here and there, and it would be perfectly fine. You could, you could still use this book as much as you like, as far as the church was concerned. So, a minimum uh, punishment from the church. Galileo did indeed keep quiet for a number of years after being ordered to do so by the Inquisition, but times changed. After waiting for uh, over a decade, Galileo felt that it was safe to try the waters again. A new pope was in power, Urban VIII, who was quite liberal. And uh, this Urban VIII even said of the 1616 uh, censoring of Copernicus that if it had been up to me, that decree would never have been issued. So we thought that even that uh, very limited uh, restriction on astronomy that had taken place at the First Inquisition was, uh, even that was too much, according to this new liberal uh, pope. And Galileo had good personal relations with his new open-minded uh, pope. He had known him before he was elected pope. So Galileo sensed an opening, and he obtained the permission to publish a dialogue in 1632. Or rather, as the Inquisition would later put it, Galileo artfully and cunningly extorted this uh, permission to publish. For, in fact, when the permission was granted, the Pope did not know about this private injunction of 1616 for Galileo to keep off the subject. You know, that quote that I read you, Galileo, you must not teach it and defend it in any way, whatever. And then, when that came to light, then, when the Pope realized that found this in the archives, you know, that, whoops, we told him not to do I mean, at that point, the Pope was outraged, and he felt uh, with good cause that Galileo had been deliberately deceitful. And uh, the Pope reportedly stated that this alone was sufficient to ruin Galileo now. So, the wheels of the Inquisition were in motion again. Special commission was appointed to investigate the matter, and so it read Galileo's dialogue, and uh, wrote a report. It found many inappropriate things in the dialogue, but uh, this was not a major issue, concluded these, uh, this church inquisition, this commission from the church, uh, because such things could be amended if the book were judged to have some utility that would warrant such a favor, is what they said. Now, the real problem instead was that Galilee had overstepped his instructions not to treat heliocentrism. This was the key point. Not the content of the book, but the fact that Galilee had been told not to, to engage, to not to write on that subject. The same report uh, also reported another interesting point is that Galileo had disrespected the Pope in another regard as well. Namely, the Pope had asked Galileo to include the argument that since God is omnipotent, he could have created any kind of universe, including a heliocentric universe. So even though the church, 
does not agree with Copernicus, uh, their own logic, namely belief in God's omnipotence, could be used to legitimate, at least considering the possibility of this hypothesis, of Copernicus' hypothesis. So that's a useful argument that Galileo could have used to try to find at least a little bit of common ground with his opponents. But instead of using it for such purposes of reconciliation as intended, Galileo used it to fuel the fires of conflict even further. He had placed the Pope's favorite argument in the mouth of a fool, as the commission report uh, states. He made Simplicio the dumb character in the dialogue, who constantly expresses the wrong ideas and is proving wrong at every turn. He made that character be the one who spoke the Pope's words about this, uh, this argument from omnipotence. So, well, Galileo hardly did himself any favors with his disrespectful move, obviously. Well, regardless. So, the, the commission uh, wrote the, that report, of course, and the, the, so it, the second inquisition proceedings took place in 1633. That is 17 years after the first inquisition, with Galileo had gotten off easy. And uh, the year after the publication of his inflammatory dialogue in defense of Copernicanism. And the outcome was a foregone conclusion. Galileo's defense was transparently dishonest. Galileo pretended that in the dialogue, quote, I show the contrary of Copernicus' opinion and that Copernicus's reasons are invalid and inconclusive. That is, of course, complete nonsense. In private correspondence shortly before, Galileo has spoken much more honestly and has stated that the book was, quote, a most ample confirmation of the Copernican system by showing the nullity of all that is brought by Tycho and others to the contrary. So that was, that, that's obviously the truth. Anybody who reads the book knows that that's Galileo's opinion. But now, before the Inquisition, Galileo had to pretend otherwise. In light of the accusations, in light of the accusations, Galileo said, "It dawned on me to reread my printed dialogue, and I found it almost a new book by another author." <laughs> it's total nonsense. I mean, he's just lying through his nose, obviously, for over here, trying to save his skin. These transparent lies did little to save him. However, he was forced to abjure. Of course, the dialogue was prohibited, put on the index of prohibited books. Not for its contents, though, but rather, in the words of the Inquisition sentence, uh, so that this serious and pernicious error or transgression of yours does not remain completely unpunished, and as an example for, of, for others to abstain from similar crimes. This was the real reason for Galileo was condemned, not scientific reasons, but his uh, disobedience from the decree that had been issued 15, 17 years before. So there's a popular myth that Galileo, of course, is that he indeed, while he officially recanted before the, uh, the Inquisition, nevertheless, as he rose from his knees, he allegedly muttered, yet it moves, the, the earth moves, that is to say, as he rose from his knees. But, but that is, of course, false. The, the Inquisition would absolutely not have tolerated that insubordination. In fact, as I said, the whole point of the trial in the first place was precisely to punish Galilee for his defiance. So, of course, they could not have accepted an open display of defiance you know, two seconds later. It doesn't make any sense. Galilee had been shown the instruments of torture, standard practice, and... Uh, the, this rebellious exclamation that, uh, well, actually it does move, 
that would have been the surest way to have these instruments dusted off for the occasion. Today, no historian believes this myth that Galileo mumbled these words before the Inquisition, and yet it remains a, an instructive, this, this myth, in warning us of the lengths that many Galilean kind of idol worshippers are willing to go to who do not want to admit the many ignominious historical facts about their hero. I mean, he did crawl like a worm before the Inquisition. People don't like it, so they make up a story that actually was the opposite of that that happened. Well, uh, people have made up many myths of that kind. The sheer multitude of these myths that are now universally regarded as busted should leave us open to distinct possibilities. We've not yet gotten to the end of these kinds of myths. And there are more myths, bubbles yet to be burst when it comes to Galileo. And that is what I'm trying to do, of course, as you have uh, become aware, I'm sure. So there is a similar myth uh, which has been appealing to certain anti-religion uh, ideologues who likes to play on this uh, episode, namely that the great Galileo groaned away his days in the dungeons of the Inquisition because he had demonstrated the motion of the earth. That's a quote from uh, Voltaire, who hated uh, religion. Uh, but in reality, Galileo was sentenced more for his uh, provocateurism than for his science. And furthermore, he was never imprisoned in any dungeon. He was sentenced, in fact, to house arrest. One visitor reported that Galileo was lodged in a room elegantly decorated with silk tapestries soon after the, uh, after the trial. That's where the Inquisition put him. Not in a dungeon, but in a room with silk tapestries. And soon thereafter, he retired to what he himself called his little villa a mile from Florence, where nearby I had two daughters whom I much loved, as Galileo says, and he also received many friends, many guests, international uh, scientists, philosophers, and so on. So many today would uh, pay quite dearly for such a retirement. A little villa outside Florence, uh, close to your daughters, uh, it's not so bad, is it? But Galileo got that as a so-called uh, punishment. So, well, hardly a dungeon, is it? So that's the story of the Inquisition proceedings. Let's look at some of the lessons then from this, uh, this episode. So Galileo's conflict with the church was, first of all, entirely unnecessary. It arose precisely because Galileo was this lampooning, uh, popularizer, a rhetorician, rather than a mathematical astronomer and scientist. Galileo was, far from standing in the role of a technician of science, had he done so, he would have escaped all trouble, as Santayana says in his book, The Crime of Galileo, and many other historians have made the same observation. Uh, the, the church establishment had no interest in prosecuting geometers, astronomers, uh, Copernicus's book, for instance, had long been permitted. Uh, it was already uh, almost 100 years old, old at this time. Uh, Galileo's own letters on sunspots of 1613 were also uh, already 20 years old by the time of the Second Inquisition. They had been censored uh, be only when it referred to scripture, not to where it asserted heliocentrism. Galileo's openly pro-heliocentrism there, and, well, that was perfectly fine with the church, you know. And if, if anything, a majority of the church intellectuals were on the side of Galileo, uh, as scholars have concluded. While the clearest opposition to, to Galileo came from secular ideas, from philosophical opponents, and these were the kinds of uh, the university uh, academics and so on, these were the kinds of people who uh, 
benefited from dragging Galileo into the, the arena of, of religion and to, uh, to leverage the, uh, you know, those, those religious conflicts for their, for their own gain. And today, uh, many take it for granted that the fundamental rift between science and religion was unavoidable, of course. Some have imagined, for instance, that Galileo defied the worldview of the Church by demoting the Earth from its supposedly privileged position. Uh, for instance, 20th century play playwright uh, Bertolt Brecht. He appreciated the dramatic flair of framing the conflict in such terms. He wrote the famous play about Galileo. You can find it on YouTube, you know, watch the whole thing over there. Anyway, Bertolt Brecht, he has one of the characters in his play argue this point, the point about the privileged position of the earth with great passion. Here's how it goes in, in Bertolt Brecht's play, where a spokesperson coming from the side of the church says the following, I am informed that Signor Galilei transfers mankind from the center of the universe to somewhere on the outskirts. Signor Galilei is therefore an enemy of mankind and must be dealt with as such. Is it conceivable that God would trust his most precious fruit of his labor to a minor frolicking star? Would he have sent his son to such a place? The earth is the center of all things, and I am the center of the earth, and the eye of the creator is upon me. That is what uh, this character says in this play allegedly expressing the view of the church establishment at the time. Historically, that is complete nonsense. Nobody was concerned about this at the time. In fact, classical cosmology clearly stipulated that the earth was not at all in a privileged position. It was rather condemned to a very lowly place in the universe. Everybody knows the hell is just below the surface of the earth. Heaven is way, way up there. Clearly, being at the center of the universe is not, nothing to be proud of. It is closer to hell than to heaven. It was a commonplace argument in Galileo's time that the earth is located in the place where all the dregs and excrements of the universe are collected. Hell is located at the center of this collection of refuse and that this place is as far as possible from the outermost empyrean heaven where the angels and blessed reside. This is a quote here, these, these colorful formulations I took from a book review in the latest issue of the Journal of History of Astronomy. You can go there and find entire books about this subject, very common at that time. Even Galileo himself added to the pile of such descriptions. Here's what Galileo says. After the marvelous construction of the vast celestial sphere, the divine creator pushed the refuse that remained into the center of that very sphere and hid it there, lest it be offensive to the sight of the immortal and blessed spirits. So Galileo is here adopting a, the, an Aristotelian framework for the sake of for the sake of argument in that occasion. Many of Galileo's contemporaries reasoned in this way too. Let me quote uh, one more example, just to, to for the sake of illustration. Uh, Considering the vileness of our earth, it must be situated at the center, which is the worst place and the greatest distance from those pure and incorruptible bodies, the heavens. This is a quote from John Wilkins, an Anglican bishop. So this is obviously the very opposite of the argument uh, retrospectively imagined by Bertolt Brecht and other uh, modern minds about the supposedly privileged position of the earth. So there was no such thing. Uh, the conflict with the church had nothing to do with the privileged position of the earth. Here's another take that you sometimes hear regarding the conflict. 
maybe Galileo brought revolutionary progress he, because he outlined the modern conception of the relation between science and religion. Was it Galileo who showed how faith and science can coexist, how they need not undermine or conflict with one another, since one is about the spiritual, the other is about the physical? Well, Galileo does indeed make an argument along those kinds of lines, but those points were common-sense platitudes and not a new vision for the place of science in human thought. Let's listen to Galileo's words from his famous and widely circulated letter to the Duchess Christina of 1615. People wrote letters at the time, so-called letters. It was really meant for circulation for among many friends, and it was a way of uh, bypassing uh, the censorship laws to, to ostensibly make it a, a letter that was uh, that was copied by many people. And here's what Galileo says in that letter, uh, quote, Far from pretending to teach us the constitution of motions of the heavens and the stars, the authors of the Bible intentionally forbore to speak of these things, though all were quite well known to them. The Holy Spirit has purposefully neglected to teach us propositions of this sort, as they are irrelevant to the highest goal, that is, to our salvation. The intention of the Holy Ghost is to teach us how one goes to heaven, not how heaven goes. So that's Galileo's famous uh, declaration there. Even a a recent pope praised Galileo for his uh, supposed insight on this subject. Here's what he says, Galileo, a sincere believer, showed himself to be more perceptive in regard to the, the criteria of scriptural interpretation than the theologians who opposed him. So John Paul II, uh, who was the Pope in 1992, he said this. But I disagree uh, with this papal statement on two grounds. First of all, uh, Galileo was not pioneering a new vision for the roles of science and religions more perceptively than anybody else. Rather, he was merely recapitulating uh, elementary ideas that were virtually as old as organized Christianity itself. So there's a chapter about this in the Cambridge Companion to Galileo by uh, Macmullen that covers the matter well, uh, which concludes with the words that Galileo's exegetical principles, that is the principle from scriptural interpretation, were not in any sense novel, as he himself went out of his way to stress. Galileo himself uh, went out of his way to stress. All of these principles were to be found in varying degrees of explicitness in Augustine, which is 12 centuries before Galileo, and separately, all of them could call on the support of even earlier uh, theologians. Galileo indeed quotes at great lengths from Augustine and and, uh, church fathers. So we didn't take a new father of science to explain how how you could uh, deal with uh, separate religion from, from science. Not that Galileo knew anything, of course, about the history of biblical interpretation. He had no expertise whatever in this area, and he evidently asked his Benedictine friend, uh, Castelli, to seek out references that would support the executive principles they had outlined, as Macmillan says in his article. Uh, So there was no novelty or, or insight whatsoever in Galileo's treatment on the relation between science and religion. And here's a second reason to disagree with the Pope. It's highly doubtful whether Galileo genuinely was a, a sincere believer, as, as he, that's what the Pope calls him, and also Galileo himself pretended to be a sincere believer, a, a proper Catholic. And that's very doubtful. 
David Wooten has a book on Galileo and he made a compelling case there for the two two Galileos, uh, the public Catholic and the private skeptic. Very plausible in my opinion. And let me quote uh, David Wooten's argument which goes as follows. The only decisive document we have is a 1639 letter to Galileo from Benedetto Castelli, Galileo's old friend, former pupil and long-time intellectual companion. If anyone was in a position to know if Galileo was or was not a believer, it was Castelli, a very close personal friend. And Castelli writes in his letter that he has heard news of Galileo that has made him weep with joy, for he has heard that Galileo has given his soul to Christ in his old age. Galileo was uh, 75 years old at this point. Castelli uh, immediately referred to the parable of the laborers in the win- in the vineyard, even those who were hired in the last hour of the day received payment for the whole day's work. And then he turns to the crucifixion, and in particular to the two thieves crucified on either side of, of Christ. One confessed Christ as his savior and was saved, the other did not and was damned. So Castelli's point is clear and unambiguous. He believes that Galileo is coming to Christianity at the last moment, but not too late to save his soul. There is no conceivable interpretation of this letter which is compatible with the generally held view that Galileo was throughout his career a believing Catholic. That's David Wooten's argument in his book on Galileo. I quoted it verbatim. This is not a mainstream view, but well, I'm inclined to, to believe it for what it's worth. But in any case, that's neither here nor there as far as the... Uh, main points regarding the the conflict with the Inquisition are concerned, but it's interesting to to consider, I think. So, uh, the Cambridge Companion to Galileo poses for itself another interesting question that it is time for us to tackle. They say, what did Galileo actually do that made his image so great and so long-standing? Now, the answer that the Cambridge Companion to Galileo gives to this question is not a list of great scientific accomplishments, but rather they say this, certainly, Galileo's was the first main effort that fired the vision of science and uh, and the world that went well beyond limited intellectual circles. So Galileo was a popularizer, in other words. It was to the man of general interest that Galileo originally addressed his works. That's a quote from Stephen Drake. Indeed, Galileo himself embraced his role he praised himself, as usual, for a certain natural talent of mine for explaining by means of simple and obvious things others which are more difficult than abstruse. Yeah, so that's Galileo, you know, talking about his own his own talent. But yeah, so he's a popularizer. I, in fact, agree with these learned authors over here, uh, the Cambridge Companion, Simon Drake, that Galileo did indeed write for the vulgar masses. I only have one thing to add, which they omit, namely that Galileo was driven to turn to popularization because he was so bad at mathematics. Galileo scarcely ever got around to writing for physicists, as Stilman Drake says. Yes, that's true, and he was scarcely able to do so either because he lacked mathematical ability. The two are not unrelated, you know. That's my thesis, that's my addendum to this correct observations uh, that Galileo was popularized. So here's an example of Galileo and his popularization uh, being the essence of what he does. Uh, You can consider the new stars, supernova as we would say today. So it looks like a new star appears in the heaven. There there were two of those in Galileo's lifetime. 
One appeared in 1572 in Galileo's childhood. It was studied with great care with uh, Tycho Brahe, a proper uh, mathematical astronomer. And another one appeared in 1604 when Galileo was uh, 40 years old and he was already an established professor of mathematics. But Galileo did not make a contribution based on serious astronomy as, as Tycho had done or using mathematical analysis or anything like that. Instead, he gave public lectures on this Nova, this new star, to layman audience that totaled more than 1,000 people. That's uh, precisely the difference between Galileo and the mathematicians in a nutshell, isn't it? In modern terms, Galileo is less of a scientist, more of a, a presenter of TV specials. It's like a Carl Sagan figure or something like that. Galileo's uh, science extravaganzas were a hit at bourgeois dinner parties, for example. And here I have a quote uh, from a contemporary eyewitness who's describing what those kinds of uh, spectacles looked like. Quote, We have here Signor Galileo, who, in gatherings of men of curious mind, often bemuses many concerning the opinion of Copernicus, which he holds for true. He discourses often amid 15 or 20 guests who make hot assaults upon him, but he is so well buttressed that he laughs them off. And although the novelty of his opinion leaves many people unpersuaded, yet he convicts of vanity the greater part of the arguments with which his opponents try to overthrow him. What I liked most was that before answering the opposing reasons, he amplified them and fortified them himself with new grounds which appeared invincible, so that in demolishing them subsequently, he made his opponents look all the more ridiculous. That's the end of that quote. So, again, it summarizes the idea that Galileo's speciality is burlesque astronomical road shows, you know, putting on a display for uh, tipsy dinner party guests. Those are the kinds of people who uh, like to listen to Galileo's clever... Uh, clever arguments that, that, that make his opponents look silly. So if you were an Italian aristocrat who enjoyed seeing the learned establishment lose face, but uh, you didn't want to rock the boat yourself, then you could live vicariously to Galileo and his snappy comebacks, his provocations. Indeed, for this purpose, it matters little whether those arguments that Galileo presents are scientifically sound or not. So just like, for example, his thing about the Bible and how the Joshua passage should be, uh, you know, if the sun is standing still, it causes the earth to stop dead in, in its motion. And all those things are uh, things that work well in a bourgeois dinner party more than they make any sense uh, as science, isn't it? So this is the context in which we must understand Galileo's conflict with the church. If we want a parallel of the Galileo trials today, we should not think of, you know, a totalitarian regime that are imprisoning intellectuals, something like that. No, a better parallel is the kind of uh, cancel culture that is going on in popular media right now. Galileo is a charismatic TV personality. Uh, many uh, enjoy listening to him, make fun of, of the other team, but sometimes he's politically incorrect. And so his enemies... They organize a social media campaign. Uh, they make a lot of noise. Galileo is too uh, hot-headed for his own good. He joins in this mud fight. He uh, launches some you know, at replies on Twitter and stuff that he didn't bet with his uh, legal department first. So he gets into hot water for this. 
And then uh, that's exactly what his opponents were fishing for. They were provoking on purpose to make him say something stupid. And then, aha, you know, I caught you there on Twitter. You said the wrong thing. And now they have their kind of gotcha quote that they can take to the network executives and get Galileo's TV show uh, canceled. Something along those kinds of lines is a, a parallel of the Galileo Inquisition proceedings in, in modern terms. Altogether, it is a regrettable spectacle, to be sure, but it is one that has not all that much to do with science, so I have argued. Thank you.